When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Deep Focus Podcast, uh, part of the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rodrigo Perez. I'm also the editor-in-chief of theplaylist.net. Uh, we hope you're reading, hope you're listening, hope you're doing well, keeping safe in our ongoing pandemic and this hellscape and whatnot. Uh, this week in my semi-irregularly scheduled podcast, my guest is Sam Pollard, the director of MLK FBI, the celebrated doc about the FBI's counterintelligence program ops, uh, CointelPro as it's known, on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the way they work to discredit and harass him in the very recent HBO doc, Black Art in the Absence of Light. You probably also know Pollard from co-directing the critically acclaimed 2020 doc, Atlanta's Missing and Murdered the Lost Children, which uh, basically was the documentary version of what David Fincher covered in the season, in the second season of Mindhunter. That season was de- deeply influenced by those true life events. Um, so, you, you know, you know Pollard's work, whether you know it or not, because it's like baked in your skin. Well, you know, it is if you're a big Spike Lee fan, and I'm a big Spike Lee fan. Um, Pollard's been working for 48 years now, spanned almost five, basically five decades of work. He's 70 years old. He's done a ton of shit, and he's probably, and it would probably take me about an hour to break down all the work. He worked as an editor on the black exploitation horror Ganja and Hess in 1973, ironically something Spike Lee would go on to remake later. Uh, he worked on the classic hip-hop documentary Style Wars in the, in the early 80s. But in the 90s, he really started kind of cooking, or at least cooking his career to what was to come when he started working with Spike Lee. And he worked with Spike a lot. Mo' Better Blues in 1990, Jungle Fever. He edited Ernest Dickerson's Juice, or Ernest, Dickerson, Ernest Dickerson being Spike Lee's uh, director of photography at the time. Clockers, Girl 6, the Academy Award nominated Four Little Girls, of which Sam shared the Oscar nom with Spike. Bamboozled, and he worked on both Spike's Incredible Katrina docs. Um, both of those are amazing if you've never seen them, like two of the greatest documentaries ever made, I, I think. So as the New York Times recently put it, succinctly and perfectly, to paraphrase, Mr. Pollard has been quietly crafting a monumental filmmaking career. Um, that's really it, I think. And Pollard, in the totality of his work, is a massive giant in the world of documentaries. He's a three-time Emmy winner, 2010's By the People, the election of Barack Obama, which he edited, with two additional wins for Spike Lee's aforementioned Katrina Docs, When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts, which he edited in Proust. And he's been Emmy-nominated seven times in total. He won a George Foster Peabody Award for their second Katrina Doc, If God is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, in 2011. He's received dozens of plaudits and flowers and awards and from nearly every major institution, the NAACP, Independent Spirit Awards, etc., etc., etc. And most recently, he was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award from the IDA, the International Documentary Association, which is literally one of the biggest honors you can get in the world of documentaries. So 
meanwhile, Pollard has directed dozens of films with subjects that have ranged from Sammy Davis Jr. to Barack Obama, John Ford and John Wayne, docs about the Tulsa race riots back in 2001, eons before, you know, the Watchmen series recently thrust it back into the popular consciousness. But in a way, and it's something that Sam also addresses in this conversation we had, he's just kind of getting his due. Um, he's kind of just getting his making his mark in a major way. The one-two punch of MLK FBI, which is likely going to receive an Oscar nomination soon, and Black Art, which is a really terrific documentary you should watch on HBO, has kind of put him on the map in a major way. He acknowledges that in our interview and says that the last six months of his life has been kind of crazy and the phone has been ringing off the hook. Spike Lee puts it in that excellent New York Times article that Nicholas Rapold wrote, uh, Samuel Pollard is a master filmmaker. If you say he's just an editor or just a director, that's not the whole story. That really seems to sum it up to me. Pollard has done it all. He's a storyteller, and he's also a dedicated chronicler of the black experience in America, which he's done throughout his entire career with docs on PBS and their American Master series, and with these two great docs that I'm talking about today. So quickly, before I yammer on too much, I won't speak too much about MLK FBI, because you've likely already heard about it, hopefully. It garnered terrific press out of the 2020 uh, Toronto International Film Festival last year. But, you know, Black Art in the Absence of Light is really terrific, too. It's out on HBO now. It de- debuted at the beginning of February. Uh, the film is inspired by the late artist and curator David Driscoll's landmark 1970 exhibition, Two Centuries of Black American Art. Black Art could have easily been just a history lesson about Driscoll's seminal exhibition, uncovering, unearthing, celebrating, and putting Black Art into a proper greater context. That would have been fine, more than enough, but it's it's more than that. Pollard works to include a lot of contemporary artists that were inspired by the Two Centuries exhibition, whether consciously or not. And he also spends time to give some shine to modern black gallerists and art collectors like rapper-producer Swiss Beats, who has really become something of a premier black art collector in the last few years you know, to help it persevere it and elevate it. And so I think uh, Mr. Pollard's doc does a, a lot of that kind of stuff. It's a, It works in that same kind of way of, of, of what Beats is doing in a way to, to elevate, persevere, you know, celebrate and put stuff into context. It's a really big stew of all that and what it means to be a black artist in America, the history of it, the cyclical nature of it. I found it to be really informative and compelling, but also really deep and moving. It's a it's, it's a real essential work to me. Um, anyhow, I hope I've teed up Sam enough and put him in a good context. He's great. He's a giant of filmmaking, and he's finally getting his due at 70 years old, and it's truthfully a really beautiful thing to see. I think we basically talked about everything I just mentioned, MLK FBI, Black Art, his work with Spike Lee, particularly some around of those great docs I mentioned, um, the cyclical nature of black trends in the media, kind of rise and fall that Sam talks about and the way history repeats itself, but also the way, you know, Pollard revisits history and, and sees it through a new lens that is both cynical and optimistic too. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think it turned out really well. And honestly, I think it's one of my best. I hope you listen and share it. I kind of think the world of Mr. Pollard, he's, he's really amazing. Um, he's a teacher too, an educator. And, and I think that that generosity of spirit um, that great teachers have, I, I believe that he, he imbues that. So quick house cleaning note, as always, the Deep Focus is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes the Playlist Podcast, the Discourse, Be Real, The Fourth Wall, and more. We can be heard on iTunes, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and now on Spotify. You can stream the podcast via Anchor FM, any way you find your podcasts. Um, please follow us on iTunes. You'll get this podcast and all of our other shows. Be sure to subscribe, drop us a comment, rate it, appreciate it blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So thanks for real. Um, and here's my conversation with Sam Pollard. I hope you enjoy it. 
Cool, cool. Well, tell me a little bit about making black art in the absence of light. Uh, I really love this doc. I thought it was informative and, and it's really important, but I also found it very moving. It's also, you made a, an art doc many years ago, a six-part doc, right? You think I'll make me a world? Yeah, I was executive producer and I directed two of the shows. Yeah. So, you know, th that's an art doc many years ago and you're coming back to this, this project. Tell me how it all came together and... Um, how maybe one differs from the other, or at least revisiting this kind of topic years later. Well, in 2018, I got a call from Jackie Glover, who was at HBO, uh, wanted me to get involved in this doc. They had been just developing and trying to get off the ground about black artists in the 20, 21st century. And as Henry Louis Gates was the executive producer, Henry Louis Gates Jr. was the executive producer. So I went and had a meeting and I thought it was an interesting project. And we had some, we had a series of conversations in 2018, summer, fall 2018, about how to do this. And initially, Skip and I thought that we should frame the documentary around the 1994 exhibit Black Male that was curated by Thelma Golden, who was a consulting, who was a consulting producer on the project. So we pitched it to Thelma, and she basically didn't think that was a good idea. She thought, you know, that it was too narrow that we should look at something that was a different sort of lens through a different lens. And so she suggested that maybe we should consider this exhibit that had been yeah. started in, that had been opened in 1976 at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art called Two Centuries of Black American Art. That was curated by the late David Driscoll, an artist and historian. So she gave me his information. I reached out to him and he happened to have an apartment in New York City up on Hunter Street in Central Park West. So in early January, around January 2019, I went to visit him, spent a, a few hours there, had dinner, talked about how two centuries came about. And was he interested in being part of this series, this documentary film about two centuries and framing it around him? And he was, he was on board with it. So we decided at that point to go up to his summer house in Maine in the summer, July, to do a long interview with him to show him in his work, in his workshop, painting, creating. And that's what we did. But between that first meeting with David and the meeting we, where we shot him in July, we started to following other artists we wanted to have in the show. Because we thought it was important to look at 21st century contemporary artists and what they, their legacy, the influence and the legacy of two centuries. So we found, we were able to bring on board, as you saw, Andy Wiley, Amy Sheldon, who had both done the Obama portraits, uh, Jordan Castile, Carrie James Marshall, Carrie Mae Weems, Carol Walker, uh, the Astor Gates, Glenn Lagan, Fred Wilson, a bunch of artists. You know, we know we couldn't get everybody, but we wanted to reach out to people we thought had different approaches to their art and different approaches to the idea of creation. That's how it came about. That part of it, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but I think that part of it to me is also really interesting and really important because, you know, you could have, or one could have made a, you know, a, a Black history art doc and, and base it off David Driscoll, but it, it strikes me as it's very important to have this sort of two conversations, the, the David Driscoll art piece, but then the, the, the contemporary artists are such a big piece of this. Yeah, that's what I felt. I felt, sure, I could have done the film just around two centuries, but I thought it would have probably had what I call a feel where it was just looking at 20th, 19th and 20th century artists. And even though they're very important, you know, Fred, um, 
Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence and Elizabeth Catlett and Selma Burke and John Biggers, they're all very important artists. I thought we wanted to reframe it in terms of what contemporary artists, contemporary African-American artists thought in their work and the, and the legacy that they're carrying on from that two centuries. That's why I wanted to combine, combine both. Right, another element that strikes me as, as, as obviously very contemporary and very crucial here, it, again, it's sort of unexpected, but I'm like, you know, the, the, the collecting part of it, the black art collectors, I, I feel like oh, yeah. that was like a really, yeah, tell me a bit about that. Cause then again, there's another like- Well, we knew, we, we, yeah, we knew that we wanted to, to add collectors and that they're, you know, there's, for the years there's been African-American collectors. David Driscoll had been collecting since he was at Howard University. So, you know, we want to find other African-Americans who are collectors. And one of the reasons that we were so attracted to Swiss Beats is because he's contemporary, he's hip, you know, the young audience would probably understand who he is and gravitate toward him. And knowing that him, people like him and Sean Puffy Combs and Jay-Z and Beyonce are collecting art, I think would be an opportunity, a window to open up to younger people to sort of say, let's go visit these museums. Let's see what a, what a you know, um, Kahende Wari looks like. Let's see what the Carrie James Marshall looks like. You know, well, who are these artists? And so it gives people an opportunity to see that people of their generation, or you know, you know, from what I call a hip hop generation, are into the art world. Yeah, it does open it up to a, a big audience. I think that contemporary decision too. Even like Amy Sherald, right? Like she's like yeah, she's young. Jordan is young, a young artist who are who are making their making their bones now with creating some very powerful work. You know, and, and I think what Amy says in the film that, you know, this is a renaissance, this is a gold rush for African-American artists because they're really being recognized and being put into these mainstream museums. And the question I always ask is how long will that continue before they stop again? But right. it's, it's good right. that's happening now, sure. Right, which is something I wanted to ask you as well because you've been doing this so long. I think one of your first credits is like 1973 Ganja and Hess or something, which is really amazing to me. Cause I was an apprentice editor on that film, yeah. Wow, wow. Because <laughs> you have probably seen so much of the cyclical nature and sort of the, probably in every art, whether it's film or art or dance or whatever, this sort of uh, like a black wave or whatever, you've probably seen that come and go many, many times, right? Yeah, think back to, the, I don't know if you were around in the early 90s, but there was a big front page New York Times spread from the Times Magazine that had, yeah. if I remember correctly, John Singleton, Maddie Rich, Spike Lee, right. you know, the Hughes brothers, you know, this was like the new wave of black cinema, you know, right. coming to you like every week, you know, and, you know, everybody was making films straight out of Brooklyn, Boys in the Hood, Jungle Fever, Juice, but then all of a sudden, right. You know, now you're seeing more African-American filmmakers and filmmakers of color, but that was that was that one moment again, and then all of a sudden it tailed off. And that's how this, you know, that's how the media business is. It's, it's, it runs in cycles. Right. You know? And also about what sells. What's going to attract, put people in the seats in the theaters? Not that we go to theaters lately, but what's going to attract people into the, to the theaters, into the museums, you know, to the, to the dance concerts, all right. that stuff. Um, it's media cycles, but do you also think that maybe given the way you've also seen, you know, the political thing shift over the years, obviously you've, you've been around to, to witness all this stuff, probably also like cultural shifts, right? Yeah, I th you know, if you ask a lot of the African-American right. filmmakers in the last six months, how's, how's, right. how's uh, their, 
right. how has work been? And they will tell you their phones are ringing off the hook <laughs> because since the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter period in the summer, you know, in America feeling guilty, 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 you know, they, they want right. to give us films. Right? I, I've been getting calls every week about Project Stanley Nelson's getting calls. Everybody, everybody who's a filmmaker comes me getting more calls. Yeah, because culturally, you know, and the society is feeling, oh, you know, we've reached a reckoning with the African-American mm -hmm. experience. We want to be able to document it more. I mean, just say it, say it alone. I mean, just say this, I'll just say this. Last, last Monday on PBS, they rebroadcast the film that my partner Joyce Vaughn and I did mm -hmm. over almost 30 years huh? ago about the Tulsa race riots and the black community of Tulsa after the race riots, but going back to T-Town. They rebroadcast that last week. And now I hear there's like four or five documentaries being made about the Tulsa massacre, you know, <laughs> so. Wow, right. And and the Tulsa massacre got back in the consciousness because of Watchmen, right? That's right. Didn't know anything about it until Watchmen, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> you know what the, What we're talking about here is what Malcolm Gladwell has yeah. coined. I don't know if he's coined it, but uh, it's moral reasoning, right? That phenomenon right. of like, right. oh yeah, we should get yeah. behind this, and then, and then there's the sort of backlash to it, or the for, the the absence of it, the forget and that that keeps coming back in culture. It's um, yeah. Just think of just think of it. You know, Rodrigo, Barack Obama was a, and then the backlash. Was, yes, yes, absolutely right. The Trump is right. the backlash. It's the moral reasoning you've given. His, his, I don't know if it's his theory, but in the way I remember reading about it, and it really struck me because I, as soon as he said it, I was like, I can't remember what year it was, but I was like, oh, that's Obama Trump. But it, it, it's, um, we let you in the door. We feel like we pat you on the back a little bit, or, or we pat ourselves on the back for letting you in the door. But then you've, it's the, the idea of moral reasoning is okay, well, you got your due now. And like, you know, you go back. Your Let's pull it back. Yeah, that's right. 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 You, you got it. You, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly the thinking. Even if, even if it's sub subconscious. Right. Right. And most of the time, well, often it can be. Yeah. Right. Although sometimes, I mean, you could even argue that uh, Moonlight winning the Best Picture and then Green Book a few years later is the start of the same phenomenon. It's it, it's like two Absolutely. years later. Right? You you think we took a step forward and two years later somebody gets best picture to agree exactly one step forward two steps back seems to be the pattern right and which you've probably seen your entire life that's right man yeah you're right i've been around a long time <laughs> <laughs> so i even even in just in in this doc the mlk doc which is terrific as well and you know the atlanta murders i see a sense of cynicism and optimism and I wonder if that's the sort of thing that's been taking you through your entire career. You really thought you really thought about this, man. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would say this to you: if you had interviewed me back in 1987 when I did Eyes on the Prize too, right. there was probably less cynicism, cynicism, and more optimism. If right. you came back and you interviewed me after I did Four Little Girls in 1997 with Spike, there was probably Just still more optimism than cynicism. Now, if you if you take if you interviewed me in 2015, 2016, you'll see that the cynicism is starting to come in more. Right. The optimism is there, but the cynicism is growing, growing. Because you know, it's a America is a is a very kind of unusual place, man, politically and socially. You think 
you think things are working well and all of a sudden yeah, right? a pie yeah. smacks you in the face. Right? Yeah, the other shoe drops and you can't get to, you can't get um, uh, uh, too laid back complacent. or relaxed. Can't get complacent. Yeah, complacent, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause like, right? Cause it'll creep right behind you and grab you by the neck. I mean, I, I kind of feel that in, in, in your work because I've seen stuff that feels like inherently angry or quietly angry, like something like Atlanta murders and, you know, God, these, these horrible injustices. And there's so much the way, you know, governments and, 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 and law enforcement is, you know, God, yeah, I mean, obviously in that document, it's just so brutal. Like, you know, how, 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 how it takes people to react and because it's black lives and sometimes it's a lot lesser to these people, but then you always seem to try and end on a note of optimism, which I even feel like in this doc, you know, you've got, a lot of stuff about well you know you heard what david driscoll said you know he says and in the words of martin luther king jr right still got a long way to go yeah. <laughs> and it's the long way to go is still a long way to go a long way to go man right. you know and it's funny you know rodrigo you always thought you know in 68 man i was 18 years old right. when dr king was assassinated right <laughs> right civil rights act had been passed passed in 64. right rights act had been passed in 65. yeah uh, the notion that you couldn't didn't have to sell the back of the bus was basically put in the back burner. But think of it this way, man. 1973 or 74, mm -hmm. I went to visit my cousins in Mississippi. My aunts and my cousins in Mississippi, a little small town called Macon. And I remember Rodrigo walking into town, a little dusty one-road town, right? And I walked into a shop to buy, you know, like I think it was a piece of candy or a card or something. 1973 event. Wow. The white lady in that store followed me around the whole store. Wow. You know, followed me around the whole store because she thought, what, there's this black man, young black man in my store. He's going to steal something. Yeah. 1973, man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, again, again, I felt that, that real, you know, there's that, there's the, we're talking about white gatekeepers and, whether it's critics or curators and, and there's that sense of cynicism, but you always sort of, I think maybe it's a way to just keep going, right? You got to like end with the optimist, right? Optimist. You got to, because, it, because if I was completely negative, man, I, I couldn't make any more films, man. I'd have to stop. Right. You know, and the same with, same with MLK FBI, right? Like that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the same a, thing. You know, you see, you see how intense, you know, the surveillance was of Dr. King. Yeah. And 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 obviously it had to be a tremendous burden on him. You know, he's dealing with being the liberal, the, the nominal leader of the civil rights movement, yeah. going from city to city trying to break the back of segregation. Yeah. He knows full well at the same time he's being surveilled 24-7 by the FBI with wiretaps right. and bugging in his room. Thirdly, in the 67, think about Rodrigo, he, he delivers on April 4th, 1967, a year before he's assassinated, the Riverside Church basically saying he's against Vietnam. Right. And he had to know that when he did that, he would be blowing up his relationship with the Johnson administration. Yeah. But he did anyway. And even though, he, and he also caught flash a backlash from those within the civil rights movement. Right. You know? So imagine the, the, the burdens this man had to deal with, but he was soldiering on. He was going to do the Poor People's Campaign. He went to Memphis to support the sanitation workers. You yeah. know, he was fighting a good fight, knowing that full well that any day his number might be up. 
For sure. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about that doc is as a guy, I keep thinking like, you know, it, to me, there's a bit of an ellipsis, the dot, dot, dot at the end, because, you know, the tapes come in, what is it? 2027, I think. Yeah. 2027. Right. Yeah. So I'm thinking as soon as I, I I'm like, Whoa, is, is this, <laughs> do we getting a sequel here? Are you going to, are you going to, you, you may, you know, everybody's been asking me now. I may have to think about it, man, do an addendum to this film, a little even a follow-up. Cause that could be a, that could be a huge, I mean, that's going to be a huge story, right? It could be a huge story. Yeah. 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 Tell me a little bit about, cause I just want to talk, I talk a little bit. I, one of the things I love about, it reminded me, you do that thing where, um, you know, before someone's interviewed, they get a sort of like portrait shot and it reminds yeah. me what, what I, we, we see in the Katrina docs and it's sort of a, a technique that Spike uses a lot. Um, and I love those Katrina docs, by the way. I think they're some of the, the most important, greatest documentaries made in the, in the, in the century. Like they're phenomenal. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about working with Spike and starting there. And, and, and I mean, obviously you didn't start there, but you know, that, there's some big films there that, that in the nineties there and even juice, which I love too, you know, that's a, that's Ernest. Ernest Dickens yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was my stuff in the nineties. Like I know, I, I know a lot of the young people like that film, man. Juice was like, I went to go see that in theaters. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's interesting that you say a thing about the profile shots. I never thought that I was, I was, I was biting off on Spike, but I probably was, man. It I, just reminded me immediately of Katrina. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's a good idea. He, he did those shots. He did those tableau shots too. Yeah. This really fighting <laughs> warm portrait yeah, shot, yeah. you know, before the interview starts. And I've always yeah. thought, wow, it's so Yeah, me and my cinematographer, Henry Ada Bonojo, we thought about that as we were getting ready to do these interviews. I said, why don't we do these profile shots for everybody? I mean these these tableau shots. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. But you know. I was I was I was working on Eyes on the Prize too as a producer, first time producer director, man. So I had a, a lot on my plate. And then I get a call one day in my apartment, my son Jason, who was 10 at the time, mm. he picked up the phone and said, Dad, it's Spike Lee. And I had just seen you the right thing. Right. So I thought Jason was like pulling my leg, man, but <laughs> it, it was Spike. And he offered me, he offered me Mobetta Blues, which I turned down, Rodrigo. Really? <laughs> I, I turned it down the first time because I was in the middle of finishing eyes too, and I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't focus on, right. on on doing a feature film. And uh, but about two months later, around Labor Day, I guess it was in '88, he called me again and said he was going up to the vineyard, Martha's Vineyard, for a vacation. And coincidentally, I was going there too with my my wife now. And um, we met at the vineyard, and I always say to people, we spent 35 minutes, 30 minutes in a coffee shop in Oak Bluffs, and he didn't say much. I think I talked myself into taking the job. <laughs> and, you know, we, you know, we did a body of work, you know, Mo Better, Jungle Fever, Clockers, Girl Six, Four Little Girls. But the thing that's interesting about Spike, man, and myself, so we never talked a lot. There was never, you know, when I when I did Juice for, I did two films for Ernest Dickerson. I did Surviving the Game. Oh, yeah. And I did Juice. Yeah. And when we did Juice together, he would come into the editing room and we would spend, I mean, after looking at the cuts and talking about the changes in the cuts, we might spend 45 minutes to an hour just talking about old movies and stuff and clips from old films. Yeah. Now, with Spike, I never did that. 
We barely talk. I mean, it was always about the work, always about the work. Is oh. this cut working? Do you need to make this change? I don't like this. Right. That's what the, that's what the deal was, you know. Maybe, you know, after about seven years of working, then it became a little more, what do you like this movie? I like that movie, you know, because we do like a lot of the same films. Right. But that was, you know, it's always been a very fascinating relationship. Well, it's funny, the other connection that you guys have that obviously came since is you're both educators and you're both teachers. Yeah, and that's right. Tell me about that because that to me probably has got to inform your work too and got to be really enriching. Like the stuff, that, I mean, I think teaching can be fascinating. Tell me about that because I, I, I and again, another cool connection the two of you have. Yeah, I, I started teaching at Columbia University's grad film school in 1988 mm-hmm. and part-time. And, uh, you know, the thing that I learned I, that I got from the gentleman who was my editing guru, mm-hmm. Victor Konevsky, K-A-N-E-F-S-K-Y, if you spell it, uh, was, you know, he would, when I was working on Ganja and had some of the films after that, he was had me spend a few days every week sitting behind him when he was editing, and he would explain his process. He would explain his decision-making. And I felt from that point on, it was important to give back, to give back. And that's what I, that's why I love teaching so much. But the other thing that's enriching about the teaching, and you hit this right on the head, is that sometimes when I'm watching some of these students, you know, new first films and mm-hmm. second films, I'm seeing some tremendous imaginative ideas, man, that I, I try to steal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's some very smart young people now making films, and they try some things that that inspire me. Right. So I, I love the teaching. Right. I feel like that's what's the interesting part about it that I that maybe some people don't think about that they think of it as teaching as one way, but to me it can be a conversation, right? Give and take. Give and take. Exactly. That's what I like about it. That's why I still do it so much, you know. I mean, I won't do it much longer. I've been doing almost 30 something years. So um, did you see Judas and the Black Messiah? No, I haven't seen it yet. It's supposed to be interesting, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is like I feel like Hoover is getting his his just due these days between your doc and him. Yeah, we're really looking son. at Hoover. I mean, obviously he's always had a not the greatest reputation, but he's really getting but, it. And I thought you might like that because like Martin Sheen's playing Hoover, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a little the makeup is weird and all that, but it's almost grotesque in a good way because he's so grotesque. Well, you know what's fascinating though, man, in the MLK FBI film. Yeah. When they took a poll in 1964, who was more popular than King? Wow. Imagine that, man. Right. And I and even back then, before I became more studied and learned it, I thought Hoover was a pretty decent guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's crazy the way history keeps rewriting itself. And I think maybe that's part of um, I don't know if you're conscious about it. Is is that part of your I don't know, not the duty is the word, but like responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. That that is exactly right. It's part of my responsibility to look at this history and revisit it and look at it in a, a different way than it was looked at before. That's right. exactly that's exactly my mantra. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel that I feel like the, you know, the moral obligation of your work. Um, yeah, you know, you've exactly. been, uh, you know, the chronicler of the black experience for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, What's really interesting is, you know, you used to talk about these waves and stuff and you get, you know, whatever, cynical. But I also feel like you're having a moment 
like you know like you personally <laughs> and i know I'm, and i wonder if you're feeling that like what you said at the, the well sure you know listen i'd be i'd be lying to you if i didn't say i didn't feel it right i mean it's amazing everything that's happened to me in the last six months right you know i've been around the block a long time as right. you said 1973 where are we at this is 2021 right right i've been around like 48 years man wow 48 years. I, I've, I've edited over 50 films. Wow. I've directed about 15 films. Wow. You know, I executive produced about 35 films. I've been around a long time, man. So, you know, as I, you know, as that old Western phrase, as I head down the end of the trail, man, <laughs> somebody's throwing me some, throwing me some, sh some shackles, shackles, whatever it is. <laughs> Well, that's that's good, right? I mean, like it's weird. People get their their flowers at different times, right? But you might as well make the most of it when they come, right? Hey, what can I say? What can I say, Jared? What can I say? So, uh, what are you doing next? I mean, you got you said you know this sounds like there's a lot of stuff happening. Well, you know, I'm trying to finish up a doc that I've been working on for quite a long time about the jazz percussionist, drummer, activist Max Roach. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working on another film about Arthur Ashe. Oh, no. He was the first African-American yeah. to win the US Open and the only African-American to win Wimbledon. Yeah, that's right. Male, the only African-American male to win Wimbledon. Yeah. You know, I got some other projects I'm trying to develop and get off the ground. The usual, the usual, what they call the freelance hustle. Right. For you, is it is it is it still more docs, though, than like, I mean, you know, like then yeah. narrative stuff for you? That's yeah, I haven't. I haven't edited a narrative film since. Right, it's been a while, right? Yeah, the last one I actually did some editing on was Inside Man. Yeah, 2006. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right before it was when Levy's came, Levy's came out in 2005, 2006. Yeah, you know, right. same time, around that time. Because we were, I was cutting some stuff in Inside Man, and there was a piece of music that Terrence wrote. And when we were working on when the levees broke and we wanted some music, I said, let's use some of that music from Inside Man, which really became the theme. Right. You know, and then the Terrence built on that theme for when the levees broke. Yeah. Terrence is another one, man. His, that guy's career is, I Huge, feel like, man. yeah, but like still, I feel like it's just getting its due kind of. Yeah, in I know, but I he's mean, been around. He's been, he, he first, you know, Rodrigo, he did, one piece of music for Mo Better Blues when Denzel's on the bridge playing. Yeah. And then, because Bill Lee had done the score. Right. And then when Jungle Fever came around, Spike asked Terrence to do the score. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the stuff in, especially the Katrina docs, just. It's oh, it's beautiful. beautiful it's like the, yeah. uh, and I, I mean, I don't know, this is just whatever. We're just sort of wrapping now. But like, it's like, it's crazy to me. Sometimes like people think about Spike's career and they don't talk about the docs that much because those two Katrina docs and plus four little girls, I mean, four little girls got nominated for an Oscar. So yes, but still even today, like I feel like it's not as well known and maybe that's just the nature of documentaries versus features. But that stuff to me is on parallel and par with like all the all his great works you know oh yeah i completely and you're agree so, and you're so key and part of all that stuff too you know yeah 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 well he well he knew that you know he knew he knew that i had a strong doc background when i started with him you know and uh when we went down to birmingham and shot the interviews for full of girls that was a really important period important moment for me in terms of 
listening to people who sounded like my cousins and aunts tell this I, story about those four girls killed in the church bombing in 16th Street Baptist Church. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's fascinating that, you know, what did I do for Spike? I did six feature films, right? right. Six. And then this, the two major documentaries, yeah. which really people really always say is some of his best work. Yeah, I feel like four little girls and eventually the Katrina docs are due for their kind of, you know, reconsideration, yeah. whether it's a, you know, a nice big criterion something or other, like they're just, like, they're yeah. really, really uh, tremendous, powerful works. And I remember seeing slight, both of them slightly after the fact and being like, whoa, like sort of just totally reoriented, reoriented yeah. my, yeah. like the narrative. So we got, uh -huh. you know. But uh, again, thank you so much for your time. I, I really love this doc. I really love your work and I'm really glad. Yeah, man, it's great, it's great. Um, so I, I really appreciate your time. I love these docs. I can't wait to see more. Oh, okay. And good luck with everything. I'm, you know, good luck with, I'm, I'm really- Black art in the absence of yes. life. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. I really, cool. really appreciate good. it. Cool. I really appreciate your work too. Take it easy, Rodrigo. Good, good meeting, nice meeting you, take care.